As always, it's time to start the show here on the Cubs Weekly Podcast, presented by Wintrust, proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs, and the only place to get your Chicago Cubs debit card. Get yours today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs. And uh, you know what? I'm always alongside my guy, Tony Andraki here on the Cubs Weekly Podcast. But this week, well, it's a special treat because it's the voice of the Chicago Cubs. This man, you've heard him on the radio airwaves since 1996. Like I said, it's my pleasure to welcome Pat Hughes to the show. Pat, how you doing? Cole and Tony, I'm doing fine. Uh, it's a special uh, time when it gets to be November. Uh, that was, of course, when the Cubs won the World Series back in 2016, early November. So that was four years ago this month. And it was actually 25 years ago this month that I was hired by the Cubs to be the radio play-by-play man. And it's kind of funny. Uh, at that time, they called me the voice of the Cubs. And now 25 years later, they still call me the voice of the Cubs. It sounds kind of like me that I, uh, to me, like I have not really had a job promotion in about a quarter of a century. But um, <laughs> it's, it's not really a, a dead-end gig. It's, uh, it's a great job, and I, I want to stay here for the rest of my career. Absolutely. Now, Pat, real quick, before we get into the, 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 the meat and potatoes of our interview, our little one-on-one here, the day you got that call, you said it was 25 years ago, and boy, time sure does fly. What was your reaction? What did you think to yourself, okay, I now get to be the voice of one of the iconic franchises in all of Major League Baseball, the Chicago Cubs? It was a big moment, Cole. There's no question about it. Uh, I was uh, one of... I you know, like maybe 200 uh, candidates or uh, applicants for the position. And you never know. You know, I was the number two guy in Milwaukee at the time, a very small market. I was trying to get one of the major jobs in a big market. So that's a big jump. I didn't know if I had a chance. But uh, you know the way this works. When you, you throw your hat into the ring, they tell you, well, you're one of the final 20. You're one of the final 10. Then it gets down to five. And then it really gets hard to sleep at night. And and then you find out you're the, one of the final two or three guys. Um, the, the other two guys, uh, Dave O'Brien has gone on to stardom at, at ESPN. And uh, Matt Vescursion was also one of the finalists. And, and he's with the MLB Network, among other places. So uh, here I am still stuck with the Cubs. And those guys have gone on to fame and fortune. <laughs> That's not a bad place to be, though. Uh, and just as you talk about the beginning of your career, how did you kind of come into your style and your own personality and how has it changed over the 25 years with the Cubs or even in the time before that? I think it's something that evolves naturally, uh, Tony. I think uh, you got to be yourself, especially on radio. You're working every day. You have no script. You hope that you have good partners. And I do. I have great partners right now. Ron Coomer and Zach Zaidman. I love those guys. And Going back to the days when I was a child, when I played ball instead of broadcast, I love being part of a good team. And uh, it, it's, it's a very cool thing. I was lucky enough to be on some championship teams as a kid and in high school basketball. I played one year of college basketball, uh, but I was on the Colt League All-Star Game that played in the World Series in 1971, 49 years ago. It was uh, staged in Lafayette, Indiana. It was the first time I was ever on an airplane ride. But uh, not to get too far off the point, I love being part of a good team. And I think the team of Ron Coomer and Zach Zaidman and myself is a very strong team. We have a great boss in Mitch Rosen. We work for the Cubs uh, with, uh, you know, great management there. Tom Ricketts and Crane Kenny, they give us absolute freedom to do whatever we want. And they're very supportive. Uh, and then the team we've had to cover 
these last five, six years has been extra special. The World Series was obviously the pinnacle, but every year they've been a contending team. And I can tell you that's not normal. Uh, when I was in Milwaukee and Minnesota for one year, I never covered that many contending teams. Uh, I had been a 13-year Major League Baseball broadcast veteran by the time I got to Chicago and no playoff games. So finally, when I got here, we got uh, a lot of playoff games and I've been blessed and uh, I have no intention of going anywhere else. I was joking about being stuck in, in a dead-end gig. It's anything but a dead-end gig. In fact, when I got this position, you guys, I didn't look at it as a stepping stone to some other major network job or television job or whatever. And our business, as you know, is full of what I would call broadcast gypsies. There are guys always looking around for that next gig and they want to make a splash. They want people to know that, hey, this guy got that job and he got that job and wow, look at him. I'm not that way. I, I have the job I like. It was what I set out to do way back when, when I was in college, when I realized I was not going to be a professional athlete. I thought being the voice of one of the great American sports franchises would be the next best way to go through life. And I've been lucky enough to do exactly that with the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, it's like a nomadic lifestyle. You know, I, I know that I'm all too familiar with that, Pat. You know, lived in Texas twice, in Louisiana, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in California, and finally able to land here in my hometown of Chicago, Illinois, to work for the Chicago Cubs and Marquee Sports Network. So I know exactly how you feel when it comes to landing that job. It's a forever job. You know, a lot of people say they always want their forever homes where they want to retire at and spend some of their last days. Well, this is a forever job. This is a job that everybody wants. And I know that as long as you're on the microphone, you're not going to let anybody have that job because you do it better than anybody else. And one of my biggest regrets all season long in this crazy 2020 is that I'm at the Marquee Sports Network studio each and every single game. I don't get to listen to you, Pat, as much as I would like to on the airwaves, but when it comes to you and how different 2020 has been, what, what did you notice, at least from the very jump? Well, it was different, Cole, with no fans in the stands, but really that is something I kind of got used to. I really noticed it when the Cubs were playing, say, the Cardinals or the White Sox, because when those two teams play the Cubs, the atmosphere in the ballpark, especially at Wrigley, but also when the Cubs are the visiting team against those two clubs, it's special. It's electric. And fans are just buzzing. And I miss that in those games in particular. But I was, on the other hand, extremely thankful that we had baseball of any form to broadcast this year because it came very close, as you guys both know, early in the season when the Cardinals and the Marlins had multiple players test positive for the coronavirus and they had to sit out for two, three, four weeks. And there was a, a day or two in that period where I thought, you know what, another couple of teams that have problems, this whole season is going to be canceled. Thankfully that did not happen. We were able to play the 60 games and then the, the full postseason. So I, I'm thankful that we had any baseball at all, but it was, um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge doing, the road games. I think most fans realize that Ron Coomer and Zach Saban and I, we worked right at Wrigley Field, obviously for the Cubs home games. But even when the Cubs were in Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or Milwaukee or, or wherever, we were there at Wrigley working off of television monitors. Now, Cole, I know you're a television guy. You're used to that. We are radio guys. We were not used to that. And uh, it was a bit of a challenge. I found I had to be a little more disciplined and wait for the play to evolve before I jump the gun. Um, 
but it was, I think it, it worked out okay. Uh, there was a funny thing that happened, funny now, not funny at the time. We were doing a game in Kansas City, and we were at Wrigley Field working off the television monitor. The Cubs were leading by a wide margin late in the game, and the person who was in charge of programming on whatever network the game was on decided he was going to cut to the Dodgers-Padres game right in the middle of ours. So here we are. We're doing the Cubs and uh, Royals, and I forget who was batting, Anthony Rizzo or whomever, and all of a sudden, Anthony's gone. I have no idea what's going on. And I remembered an old story by Ronald Reagan, the president, who I think a lot of baseball fans know. He was a radio baseball announcer way back in Des Moines, Iowa, for, I believe, WHO Radio, and one of his jobs was to be a play-by-play man for the Chicago Cubs. This is back in the 1930s, I believe. But there was a story that Ronald Reagan told that I thought of that night when they cut away from the Cubs game, and I'm left hanging. I have no idea what Anthony Rizzo is doing. So Ronald Reagan, at that time, uh, he was doing a recreation. He lost the, the feed. They, the, the machine broke. So he had no idea what was going on. He had the batter foul off about 35 straight pitches. So that's what I had Anthony Rizzo do. Here's a swing and a foul back, a swing and a dribbler foul, line drive foul down the right field line. And Coomer and I are kind of laughing and wondering, you know, where is the Cubs game? What is going on? But uh, finally, after about, I'd say, two minutes, it felt like about two hours, they came back and they put the Cubs video on. But it was a good laugh, and I've learned after all these years it does no good to get uptight or mad or angry. Stay loose. Have fun. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, Pat, it was almost like during the, the early Red Barber and Vin Scully days where they had to listen to the games over the radio, and then once the play came through, they had a, you know, some uh, two-by-fours, and then base hit turns the right side, and the runner's coming home. It's, like, it's, it's almost like that, like yesteryear in 2020, huh? Exactly. But, uh, again, it was kind of cool. It was uh, also uh, funny at the ballpark when you're at Wrigley. Now, the TV crew is there, Len and JD. They're over on television, and, and we have an engineer, Paul Zerang, and, and uh, they had a little crew. But literally, there were only like 10 people in the ballpark when the Cubs were on the road. There was the radio crew and the television crew. We had the lights on in our booths. That's obvious. But when uh, the sun started to go down, uh, we thought the lights would stay on at Wrigley. No, you could not see second base from where we were. And the first few games that we were working at Wrigley doing a road game and working off the monitor, I found myself out of habit looking at the field because that's what I've done every single minute that I've been a play-by-play man for 38 seasons. And it's a very lonely feeling when you look at the field and there's no one there. And then it turns dark and you can't see anything. But again, it was all an adjustment I'm glad we did the games, and we may have to do them in that manner in the future. I hope not, but if we do, it's not that big of a deal. And I always, I always kept in mind, with all the suffering across the board in this country that people were undergoing, uh, my job of doing games on the monitor is a minor inconvenience compared to most people. And as you guys were doing those road games and stuff one of the road games happened to be a no hitter in milwaukee as as alec mills threw it how different was that experience for you to broadcast that game compared to the jake arietta no hitters or or any of the other ones that you've called in the past it was exciting tony Uh, a no hitter is always exciting the drama and the excitement kind of builds after about the fifth inning then you get to the sixth 
and you think, well, somebody's probably going to get a hit. Alec Mills is a good pitcher. He's never been a great pitcher. He may. He was a rookie. So this, like so many things in baseball, came right out of the blue. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of the 20 strikeout game of Kerry Wood back in 1998. Kerry was making his fifth big league start. You had no way of anticipating that he was going to make baseball history, strike out a National League record number of guys in one game against a very strong Houston Astros team. But the no-hitter by Alec Mills was in a way similar to that. It was at Miller Park. It was on a Sunday, and it was a beautiful sunny day. Uh, Milwaukee just did not hit the ball that day, and everything they hit uh, was right at a cub. There was one pretty good defensive play by Ian Happ in center, as I recall, but nothing in the outstanding defense category. It was um, just very businesslike and very workmanlike. Alec Mills just kept throwing strikes. He kept getting outs, and he mowed down the Brewers in nine innings, and nobody really even came close to a base hit, but it was special. It was the seventh one I've had the honor and privilege of covering, and it was the fourth by a Cubs pitcher, the two by Jake Arrieta back in 2015 and 2016, and then Carlos Zambrano in uh, 2008. And Zambrano's no-hitter is a great trivia question. Where was his no-hitter against the Houston Astros? You would think, well, it's got to be either Wrigley or Houston, right? No. Hurricane Ike had forced a cancellation of the series in Houston, that no-hitter took place at Miller Park in Milwaukee, the same place that Alec Mills had his no-no. It's mm, funny how things come full circle just like that because I know that all those Brewers fans, I know that they hate that a Cubs pitcher has a no-hitter at Miller Park, and it's not against even the Milwaukee Brewers. It's just there kind of just hanging out there in the stratosphere. Brewers fans, I, I know that sits in their, in their craw rent-free each and every single time they hear that stat. But, you know, at, at least for me, Pat – you know, getting into this field, it's, it's not the run-of-the-mill industry, and I know that there's so many different jobs that dot the landscape, and it's tough to get all these jobs. Like, like you said, you were already uh, almost a 15-year Major League broadcast veteran before you got this job with the Chicago Cubs. So was there any one instance in particular that made you go down that path, or was that something that you planned out from scratch? Was that the blueprint originally when it came to Pat Hughes' plan of life to be the Cubs broadcaster for 25-plus years? Well, uh, I would say, Cole, that when I was in college, I played one year, like I said, of college basketball. I was one of those kids who played ball like it was my job every single day, okay? Football, basketball, baseball. I played quarterback. I was a shooting guard. I was a shortstop. Every day, I'm out there with my buddies. We're getting pickup games together, and, and I absolutely loved it. And I thought, boy, wouldn't that be fun to make a living shooting baskets or throwing passes or playing shortstop or whatever. And then I got to be about 17, 18. I was a good athlete. I was not a great athlete. And I realized maybe the next best thing to being a player would be to be a play-by-play -play man, because not only are you making a living, but you can do it your whole life. And here I am now officially a senior citizen. I turned 65 in May. I don't feel 65, but I'm making a living in sports. I have a great position. And I still think just the way I thought back when I was 18 or 19, that being a play-by-play -play man, and, and I'll tell you what I wanted, Cole, really. I wanted to be the voice, the radio voice. I, I, I don't mind television, I've done television, and if I ever lose this job and there was a TV job open, I might apply. 
but I love doing radio play-by-play, -play, especially baseball. It's a challenge, it's fun, and I love the game. But my goal was to be the, vo the voice of one of the great American sports franchises. And it could have been football, basketball, or baseball. And we all know if you're a sports person, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Just take baseball. You got the Cubs and White Sox and Cardinals, Yankees and Red Sox, Dodgers and Giants, maybe one or two others, Baltimore, I guess. But, you know, there's that core in every sport that has the great franchises. And that was my goal. And I got it. And I'm going to stay here as long as I can. Yeah, Pat, uh, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but the, the Baltimore Orioles, they haven't been that storied franchise in quite some time. And, uh, yeah, no, they maybe, maybe, maybe we'll see him return to prominence sometime soon, but uh, it doesn't look like anytime soon. But, uh, yeah, Tony, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you get back to your line of questions. Yeah, I, I'd like to retract that one. We can do some yeah. editing on this, right, please, <laughs> later on. No, but, it's no, okay. It's okay. Right. Yeah, once upon a time, it's, it's crazy for oh, all yeah. those kids who don't remember the Baltimore Orioles. Even if you go back to the Roberto Alomar days, they were pretty stout. Well, and when I was in the American League, the Orioles had Cal Ripken Jr. and Eddie Murray hitting back-to-back -back in the lineup, two tremendous ball players, both over 3,000 hits. Of course, Cal set the Ironman record, breaking Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak. And Eddie Murray was a tremendous ball player at first base, switch hitter with power, uh, Eddie and, and Cal. And then going back to the 60s, they had those great teams with Frank and Brooks Robinson. And it is a great baseball town. I think, um, you know, you're right. Lately, they have not been. But it's one of those cities where the fans are completely into it. You get into a cab or you go to a coffee shop. Everyone is talking Orioles baseball, or at least they were back in the day. And I guess that's why I just had, uh, included them in that, in that great American sports franchise. So, Pat, over your career, uh, there's, the Cubs have had and, and their opponents have had a lot of interesting names. You know, there's tough ones to say, like Mark Rudzelanik that we know famously Harry Carey had issues saying or uh, Jeff Samarja or so on. Who was always a, a difficult name for you to say? And then, it, you know, a little bit different realm. Who are some of the guys that you've just enjoyed watching even more beyond like going beyond just broadcasting their games? Well, first of all, the names and you mentioned uh, Harry Carey or at least maybe I thought about Harry, but when, when you mentioned Mark Redzelanik, I thought about Harry Carey. That's what it was. Um, I told you I'm a senior citizen. I have these little, little lapses, but it, it's a funny story. Harry used to have fun saying names backward. He would spell the name and say it backwards. And so one day I went in there and I said, hey, Harry, I see Mark Redzelanik. Harry, Harry worked on Cubs radio with Ron Santo and me for a couple of years before he passed. And, uh, I said, uh, Harry, how would you say Mark Grudzelanik backwards? He said, it already is backwards. So <laughs> he, he set me straight right away there. But, um, no, I, I think if you do your homework and you ask the visiting broadcaster how they say their players' names, uh, you really should get the names right. And once you get it right, uh, it should not be an issue thereafter. But it's it's a matter of being polite and, and uh, you know, know, respecting the guys on both teams and getting their names right. Everyone wants to hear their name said properly. As far as some of the players that, that I've enjoyed watching, um, I, I saw his name in the paper when Anthony Rizzo was named the gold glove winner, and that would be Derek Lee. Derek was a, a great player. Uh, he played about a decade ago, 15 years ago, and I, I saw him in his prime. I saw him win a batting championship. He was a great first baseman, but he was a cool guy, too. He, he was 
all about winning the game. Uh, he never got too excited, but he could hit. He could hit with power. He was a clutch player, great defensive player, great base runner, great teammate. So I would say Derek Lee is one of my all-time favorite players to watch. And Aramis Ramirez would be in that category too. I think Aramis is right there along with Ron Santo, possibly, as the two greatest third basemen in the history of the Chicago Cubs. And, and let me just say about Ron Santo, um, he was such an important guy and a special guy to me. And he was so bizarre and so funny. And we laughed every single day. But I, I was thinking when I was talking to Cole about getting this job 25 years ago, um, before our first exhibition game, this would have been March of 1996. And um, I, I remember the night before the game, I was very nervous. I came from Milwaukee, one of the smallest markets. Here I am now in Chicago doing the Cubs, one of the biggest markets. So you, you can't make a bigger jump in baseball than Milwaukee to the Cubs. But I was, I was nervous. But Ron Sato knew that. He called me the night before our first game. He said, Pat, I know you're nervous. Don't be. He said, you're going to be great. We're going to have fun. You do the play-by-play. -play. I'll do the color. We're going to have some wins. We're going to have some losses. But we're going to laugh every day. And we're going to have fun. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I was no longer nervous. I slept well. I looked forward to the next game. The next day, our first game together, everything went well. And I will never forget how kind and generous of a move that was by Ron Santo to me. And, and I loved him for it. Now, Pat, having spent, you know, 25 years in the booth for the Chicago Cubs, coming from the Milwaukee Brewers organization, there's a guy in the booth that calls games by himself, and he's been doing it for over 40 years. That's Bob Euchre. Now, a lot of people, they know him as George Owens from Mr. Belvedere, but, uh, or they even know him as a guy from the, the Miller Lite commercial from the best seat in the house. But when it comes to a, a guy that is, is standalone, one of the best to ever do, I mean, we've heard Vince Scully, we've heard Red Barber, those guys, and they, they were in a class of their own, but Bob Euchre, I mean, this is one of the best to ever do it. And for him to, you know, come in contact with you and for you to come in contact with him, what did you learn from him? I learned a lot of things from Bob, and, and you're right. He's a great announcer, loves the game. He is one of the rare people, Cole, also, who grew up in Milwaukee and then became the voice of the Milwaukee Brewers. That's very fortunate, similar to you and your story. You're from Chicago, and now you're getting to work here uh, on Marquee. So good for you, Cole. That's a rare thing. You can go all the way around the big leagues, and there aren't that many guys who grew up in the city in which they are working. There's a few, Mike Shannon in St. Louis. John Miller in the Bay Area, uh, Gary Cohn in New York, Howie Rose in New York, and there's, there are a few others. But most of us have to go where the gigs are, as you know. So uh, Euchre is from Milwaukee. He's probably one of the most famous sports icons in the history of the state of Wisconsin. You might put Brett Favre in there. You might put Vince Lombardi. Um, you know, there's a few others, maybe. But Euchre's right up on the, on the top of the, the mountain in, in that regard. Great play-by-play -play man, stand-up comedian, but he does not try to be a stand-up comedian doing baseball on the radio. People think that he was a laugh a minute. That's not the case. If you try to be funny every minute, you would sound like a fool because here's a professional comedian realizing, no, you pick your spots. You, you throw a zinger in here, you throw a zinger in there. Mainly, you're calling balls and strikes letting people watch, uh, know what's going on in the game. And that's why he's survived. But he's a Hall of Famer. 
absolute icon. I learned, I think, pacing. Um, I learned how to fill, uh, like during rain delays. He's, a, he's a, an unbelievable talent during rain delays. But you tell stories, you have fun, you relax, and you just talk baseball. So um, I learned a lot from Bob. He, he um, you know, he's, uh, he, he's a, a very um, complicated man, I would say, in many ways. But I did learn a lot from him, and we got along just fine. As you mentioned, too, you know, working alongside people and um, telling stories, going through that route, and obviously Ron Santos, as you just talked about a couple minutes ago, what was that like? You know, kind of take us behind the scenes a bit, working with Ronnie for as many years as you guys did. And we've heard some of the great stories. I think it's the toupee starting on fire is, is my favorite and the other ones. But, but what was that like on a day-to-day basis working with Ron? It was fun. Uh, it was crazy. Uh, Ronnie was one of the funniest people just by being himself. And, um, you know, you don't even have to embellish stories. Just tell them. And it's, it's funny just to think about it. He was, we were in the booth in Cincinnati. I have to clear this, uh, clean this up a little bit, but I don't worry. I won't use any profanity, but he certainly did. Um, <laughs> it was, he's reading his fan mail. It's about an hour and a half before the game, Cubs and Reds at old Synergy Field. And he's looking at a letter and he says, hmm, speaking of parents, I better call this lady. So he calls up a lady, I think her name was Mary. And he says, Mary, it's Ron Santo. And I'm looking at this letter here. So you'd like me to speak to your group on spam cell research. I think I can make that speech. I heard spam cell research. And I tell Matt Boltz and Andy Mazer, the two guys in our booth, I said, there's a lady who wants him to speak about stem cell. He thinks it's called spam cell. I said, now there's a speech I want to hear. And we all start laughing. And he's on the phone with Mary. He hears us all laughing. And he knew we were kind of laughing at him because that's what we did. <laughs> so he, he, he looks at us and kind of scowls at us. And he's still leaving the voicemail to Mary. And he looks and says, oh, blankety, blank, blank, blank to all of you guys. And then, of course, we laughed even harder when he said that. Then he realizes he's still leaving the voicemail with Mary. And Mary heard every word he just said. And, oh, Mary, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to say that. But, yes, I will talk to your group on spam cell research, and we'll talk later. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, I hope that Mary still has that voicemail, because that right there would be worth his weight in gold. <laughs> it was beautiful, though. He... Um, he was a fun guy. He really was. Um, even after he lost both of his legs to diabetes, and, and that's no joking matter at all, but he did not change. He loved the Cubs more than he loved life itself, I think. And I, I would like to think that broadcasting games for the Cubs in the last few years of his life extended his life. And I think he loved being part of the, the Cubs radio broadcast. And he loved the division championship teams of 2003 and 2007 and 2008. One of my favorite weekends at Wrigley was the, the final weekend of 2003. The Saturday of the final weekend, the Cubs sweep a doubleheader against the Pirates. The sweep gives the Cubs the division championship. Great day. Unbelievable. Houston had lost earlier. The Cubs win two. Uh, the Cubs win the division. It's, it's great stuff. They're going to the playoffs. The next day, Ron Santo has his number 10 retired 
in a special on-the-field ceremony before the final game of the season. I got to be the master of ceremonies and introduce Ron Santo. But you talk about a big weekend at Wrigley Field, mm -hmm. sweeping a doubleheader, winning the division, Ron Santo getting number 10 retired on the Sunday. That's about as big as it gets. Well, we know, Pat, that the, the, as big as it gets when it comes to Ron, that was as good as it gets. But when it comes to championships, well, there's nothing right now, at least, that can duplicate 2016. Now, we know that everything went down at Progressive Field, but to be able to be on the call, and, and I've seen your, your, your scorecard from the final game. Mike Santini, our boss over at Marquee Sports Network, he has that, that game seven final scorecard. It says Pat Hughes scorecard. I'm like, hold on a second. Pat Hughes gave you his original scorecard. I guess it's a facsimile. I don't think you're letting anybody have that one right there. But to see that 2016 Cubs team, I went to game four, flew in from Los Angeles. They, they lost, but, you know, I stuck to my guns. I said three-game winning streak starts tonight, and, boy, did they ever start that three-game winning streak in game five at the friendly confines, Pat. Even as you just start talking about it, Cole, I start smiling. Just, mm -hmm. just the thought, the memory of the World Series and coming from – uh, three games to one behind. And then game seven was an amazing game. It was a, a good old-fashioned, you know, back and forth, uh, tug and pull. And, you know, the, the, the Indians getting the, the home run by Rajay Davis in the eighth inning to tie the game off of Rollis Chapman. Uh, people said, weren't you just sick to your stomach? I said, well, A, no, because that's baseball. B, the Indians are in the World Series, too. Let's give them respect. It does not surprise you when a good team makes a comeback. And finally, it did not make me sick because it only tied the game. Now, had the Cubs gone behind at that point, that would have been a different story. It's the eighth inning. Then you think, uh-oh, we're down to three outs, and now we trail. But I knew the Cubs had a great offense. I knew also that the Indians were starting to run out of their best pitchers. And I knew the Cubs offense could do some damage against almost anybody. And that's what happened. They scored two in the top of the 10th inning. The Indians got one. And then I got a chance to be the first Cubs announcer ever to say, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. And um, I hope I get a chance to say that again real soon. I hope so, too, because you'll give me chill bumps then, as you just did right there. I mean, it was four years ago and, and counting, but it still feels pretty good, Pat. You know what? I, I, I can't uh, uh, believe how much time has gone by. It's like it was yesterday. And I vividly recall so much about that game. Dexter Fowler hitting the home run and the two runs scoring on the wild pitch for the Indians and uh, uh, Miguel Montero getting that clutch single in the 10th inning to make it a two-run lead. Ben Zobrist, RBI double, just out of the reach of Ramirez at third base to give the Cubs the lead. But so many images and Javier Baez had a home run to right center in that ball game. David Ross in his final big league game. Mm -hmm. David goes deep against Andrew Miller, one of the best pitchers in the game at the time. That's, that's Hollywood stuff right there. And then David Ross becomes the manager of the team, but they carry David Ross off the field after the game. Uh, the final play, Chris Bryant. Yes, I did see his foot slip uh, as he made the throw. And, and Rizzo, thank goodness Anthony is 6'5 or 6'4, and he, he reached up to save what might have been a wild throw. So many images. Um, and, and people say, well, did you plan out what you were going to say? And I said, well, yes and no. I mean, you want to say something about, you know, the Cubs winning the World Series. But approaching that moment 
I didn't want it to be about me, and I wanted it to be a good, clean, clear call. Um, and I, I wanted to, first of all, be honest to the radio audience, because that's what I am. I'm a radio man, not TV. Guys on television can maybe treat it differently. Radio, you have to make that final call. I was able to say, grounded slowly toward third. Bryant will glove it and throw to Rizzo. It's in time. I had to wait for Joe West to pump up the right arm. It's in time. And that took discipline. I did not want to jump the gun and say, you know, it's in time and the ball goes over Anthony's head. So there was so much going on. And I had to really fight to, you know, keep your emotions under control. Um, but I, I was okay. It's not the greatest call that's ever been made. I, I'll, I'll grant you that. It was the best I could do at that moment. And, um, and I can live with it. But, you know, when people say, well, you know, did you, did you plan it out? I said, well, let's paint two different scenarios. One would be, it's an 11 to nothing lead for the Cubs uh, with two outs in the bottom of the inning, uh, bottom of the ninth inning. So that's one feeling, a blowout, not, not much tension. Or you could have the nerve wracking feeling that we all did in actuality in game seven in Cleveland, which is a, a cliffhanger and crazy. And, you know, you're just hanging on the edge of your seat. So those are two different feelings. If you thought of something to say, Cole and Tony, it might fit one of those scenarios, but it might be completely inappropriate for the other. So I didn't go down that path. I just wanted to make the final call, get out the fact that the, uh, the Cubs won the World Series. I actually meant to say the longest championship drought in the history of American sports is over. It came out the longest drought, but that's not a big deal. I think people get the idea. So it was exciting. It was exhilarating beyond belief. And um, would I want to do it every single day? No, but every other year would be okay. I think most Cubs fans would probably argue with you that it is the greatest call in American sports history. I know that's something that they've heard over and over again, like Cole was just saying, getting goosebumps right away as soon as you start talking about it, Pat. But in the moments after that, it, just the minutes or – um, you know, you guys are off there, go to a commercial break, whatever. What, can you take us through that? Like what emotions kind of hit in? When did it really settle in to you that this, this thing happened, this, this huge, expansive thing, largest drought in American sports history, as you said, it, it's over. And these Cubs fans are all elated. When did that all set in for you? What was that like? You know, it was very cool, Tony and, and Cole, uh, to look around in the stands to see how many Cub fans were there. That's a remarkable thing that people don't really make a big deal of. But how Cub fans got a hold of between 10 and 15,000 tickets for a game in Cleveland, and their franchise hasn't won a World Series since 1948, so that was a pretty big deal for them also. But somehow Cub fans, whether they paid a lot of money uh, through scalpers or whatever, they got 10 to 15,000 tickets. They all stayed in the stands after the game was over. And just to look around, Coomer and I are saying, look at the number of Cub fans that are here in Cleveland. This is unbelievable. And it was. So that's, uh, that's something that uh, I will never forget, uh, just, just how special it was and how much fun it was. Uh, but then I went down to the clubhouse. Joe Madden, bless his heart, he comes up to me, gives me a big bear hug. Before I can say anything, he says, I'm glad we did this for you. And I thought, Joe, me? I'm glad you did it for you and for the Cubs and for fans everywhere. Uh, but for him to think 
and to be thoughtful enough to say, you know, from me, uh, I, I'll never forget Joe Madden saying that. The great Bill Murray was in the clubhouse. Uh, it was a wild scene of, of players and media and celebrities. And uh, we went into Joe Madden's office. There was the World Series trophy right there on his desk. We took a photo of it. Um, it, it was a lot of fun. It, it really was. It was surreal. But just to be part of it. And then to get back to Chicago, uh, I remember the bus time. It was a, it was a late night game. Uh, then the celebration. And then uh, they said, the bus will be leaving at 4 a.m. And I, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever caught a bus at 4 a.m. in my life. But we went to the airport. We took the charter home. We landed at about 5, 530 uh, at O'Hare, uh, took the buses to Wrigley. And there were, there were hundreds, maybe even a thousand fans at Wrigley at six in the morning. This is five hours after the game had ended. Media was there. You had uh, local television cameras. I did several interviews. Um, and it was just, it, it, was, it was exciting. It's hard really to put into words how much fun and how exciting that was. And mainly, I knew how special it was to the millions of people all over the world. You know, a lot of people said, were you thinking about Ron Santo during game seven? And I said, well, yes, but I think about Ron Santo every day anyway. He and I were business partners and uh, partners for 15 years. He was a big part of my life. So yes, I was thinking about Ron, but I was also thinking about Ernie Banks and Harry Carey and Jack Brickhouse and the millions of Cub fans who never got to live long enough to experience what you and I did that special night. And it was very emotional to think about all those people. And thank goodness there were millions more who did experience it and they'll never, ever forget it. Absolutely, Pat. Now you've worked alongside Hall of Famers, Ford C. Frick Award winners. You called the World Series championships, also no hitters. So when all the dust settles, when you're able to get on that horse and ride off into the sunset, how do you want to be remembered? As someone who did not fall off the horse, first of all, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I think um, I do my best. I, I think I'm so lucky to have this job. I love to have fun. I love to, to uh, learn things. I love to read about baseball history. I'm, I'm uh, addicted to crossword puzzles and vocabulary. So I get to use words in my job. Um, I was raised in a family of learning. My father was a college professor. My mom was a, an elementary school teacher. So I like talking. I like uh, having fun. I love being the voice of the Cubs. I really do. I, I mentioned earlier, this is not a stepping stone to go somewhere else. When I leave here, I, I do not think there's any possibility I would ever broadcast a game for another team. I'm not sure of that, but that's the way I feel. Uh, so I want to stay here as long as I'm healthy. Uh, and having fun, and, and if I feel like I'm still doing an effective job, because like I said, we have this great position, uh, Ron Coomer, Zach Zayman, Mitch Rosen, our boss, the Cubs, the fans, the excellent team. Uh, it's been such a special five or six, seven years here lately. I've loved the whole 25 years I've been with the Cubs, but in particular lately, uh, it's been extra special. So I'm just, I'm a lucky guy. Uh, I don't analyze what people think of me. That's up for them. I hope it's positive. I think most of it is. Um, but um, I, I hope that when they hear my name, that they smile. And it reminds them of 
the Cubs, maybe having a good time. It might remind them, a lot of people say, you're the voice, you're the soundtrack of my summer. Well, that's, that's not a bad thing to be thought of. And it says, when I hear your voice, I immediately think back to when I was 15 years old and it was you and Ron Santo and my family was all around. We were taking a trip, we were in the car, we were listening to you on the radio. That's cool, I love that. So I don't know, it's, it's hard to really say how you want to be remembered. I guess in a word, favorably. As we're reflecting on your career, Pat, at, we've talked about the World Series. We've talked about no-hitters and, and some favorite Ron Sanders stories. But was there an ever an average Tuesday or, or just a regular game that maybe do, doesn't stand out to a lot of other fans? But for you, when you're sitting at home and, and it's, you know, maybe more quiet, you think back and you're like, that was awesome to me. That was this, this memory. And there's maybe nothing remarkable about it. But, it was, you know, there were some games like that that just stood out to you for whatever reason and, and became some of your favorites. That's a good question, Tony. And uh, probably I mentioned the Kerry Wood game earlier. Uh, that was, in, in a sense, kind of what you're talking about. It came out of nowhere. It was a sleepy Wednesday afternoon at Wrigley. Uh, only about 18,000 people were there. It rained off and on during the game. Uh, 18,000. I've laughed with Kerry Wood about that since then. He says, I've had at least 180,000 people tell me they were there that day. But <laughs> It's like Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game back in, I think, 1962 in Hershey, Pennsylvania. He says there have been about a quarter of a million people, at least Wilt before he passed, he said at least a quarter of a million people said they were there that night. In actuality, the attendance, I think, was 2,000 or something in Hershey, Pennsylvania. But I, I think um, uh, part of what I like about baseball is that things happen out of the blue. You've never seen them before. You probably will never see them again. Uh, just odd plays where a, a ball is being thrown or there's confusion whether the ball is caught or trapped. Um, you know, balls being thrown away. Um, how about that weird double play that we just saw in the postseason between Atlanta and the Dodgers? Um, runners at second and third with nobody out and a ground ball to third base, and it turns into a 5 2 six let's see is that right five <laughs> two six double play yeah. yeah and all of a sudden the inning is over and and uh atlanta gets nothing that was the turning point in in that ball game there's no question about it in my mind but um it's hard to it's hard to pick out just an obscure game i guess i just love the game for its uh it's it's both simple and it's very complex at the same time the more you know about the game the more complicated it is, but it's enjoyable for kids that are 10 years old or senior citizens who are 80, men, women, all kinds of educational backgrounds, love baseball, all kinds of ethnic backgrounds, love baseball. So it's, it's a beautiful thing that brings a lot of people together on a daily basis every spring and summer day. Pat, I like to steal this phrase from my dad. I try to use it as much as possible, but they always say that the biggest room in the house is the room for improvement. So if you could give any piece of advice to any of the youngsters out there who listen to you on a day-to-day -day basis and let them know that, you know, your career, it's, it's how you finish. It's, it's not necessarily how you start. What would you tell them? I would say uh, try to find something that you enjoy. Uh, whatever, if you're in, in high school or college and you're wondering 
what are you going to do with your, with your career? I would say try to find something you have passion for, something you really enjoy. And if you can make a living doing that, that passion, then so much the better. But that should be an important thing. Uh, not everyone can be a, a big league baseball announcer. Not everyone can be a ball player or a singer or an artist or, or whatever, or a TV star. Um, so, you know, there's great competition, but I would never discourage anyone from doing anything. If you have the talent and the passion and you're willing to work for it, you can do anything. And I'm living proof. I came from nothing. I'm, I was a, a kid from San Jose, California. I love sports. I didn't know anybody in professional sports at all. Like I said, my dad was a college professor. He coached all of our little league teams. He threw batting practice and, you know, shot baskets with us all the time. It doesn't matter what your background is. You, you can do it, but you have to be willing to, uh, to work for it and to put every bit of your energy into it. What's the saying? All in. You have to be all in. So well, I don't know. Well, as cliche as it sounds, Pat, like you said, if you, if you find something that you love to do, you'll never work a real job a day in your life. And uh, by the looks of it, uh, you just go in there and it's, it's, a, a, it's, a, it's a passion for you. It's not necessarily a job. You just get to go to 1060 West Addison and you get to call Cubs games every single day. And, and what, a, what a lucky fan base the Cubs fans are and, and how lucky were we to have you on the show today? Well, we're extremely lucky, Pat. Always a pleasure. Great to catch up with you. And thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule for us. Happy to do it, Cole. Happy to do it, Tony. Cole, you said one key word there. You get to broadcast the games at Wrigley. And that's precisely correct. Uh, people, sometimes they have a job. They say, I have to do this. I have to do that. I get to broadcast Cubs games against the Cardinals. I get to cover postseason games of the Chicago Cubs. I, I was lucky enough to get to do game seven of the World Series back in 2016. So getting to do it, uh, feeling privileged and, and fortunate is uh, a, a very strong feeling that I have about doing this job, Cole. So that was the right word you used. Yeah, we feel very privileged to be able to tune on the radio and listen to you on the call for every single Cubs game. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Hughes, the one and only. Pat, like we said, it was our pleasure, and that's going to do it for this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast brought to you by Trust. And remember, as always, download and subscribe to the pod on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods so you won't miss a single episode. For Tony Andracki and Pat Hughes, I'm Cole Wright. We'll catch you next time.